This is Kevin McDonald, the Improv Nerd, and you're listening to the Improv Nerd, but not Kevin McDonald. Yes, you're listening to him now, but I mean you're listening to the bigger project called Improv Nerd. Sorry. That's improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, I'm Jimmy Corain, and this is a very special episode of Improv Nerd. We're lucky enough to sit down with Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall, who talked to us about his first improv class with Mike Myers in Toronto, his relationship with Dave Foley, and the evolution of one of the greatest sketch groups of all time, Kids in the Hall. Kevin McDonald is one of the co-founding members of Kids in the Hall that ran from 1988 to 1995, and it continues to have this huge cult following, attracting a whole new generation of fans. Uh, since 2002, the kids have embarked on a couple tours and created a mini-series for the CBC called Death Comes to Town. He's in Chicago teaching a two-day improv for writing workshop. Kevin McDonald, welcome to Improv Nerd. Thank you for having me, Improv Nerd. I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm just calling the whole show. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You're not a nerd in any um, I am, Kevin. I am. You're, but, you're, but, you're, you're a beautiful dreamer, I could, but you're not a nerd. Thank you. Now... Um, you talk openly in your one-man show, Hammy and the Kids, about yes. your abusive alcoholic father. Yes, I do. What was that like growing up? Uh, it's funny. I, uh, first of all, I only talk about it uh, during the show because my dad died, <laughs> so that was good. Were you afraid uh, to talk about him when he was still alive? It's not that I was afraid. Uh, I probably would. Maybe I wouldn't have out of respect. Um, it's just that I never got the idea to. <laughs> it's, it's because um, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I was still. I mean, I wouldn't be able to think it was funny. I didn't think it was funny until after he died, for, for some reason. It's like the first time uh, the Kitchen Hall, we did the sketch, Daddy Drank, mm-hmm. which is uh, which got in my one-man show, too. But uh, I was um, I went to the office one day, and Dave and our writing partner, Norm, were there. Norm and Hiscock. And Norm Dave Hiscock Foley. and yeah. Dave Foley. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. I'll stop leaning into the mic. I'm sorry. Yeah, you don't have to lean into the mic because it... <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we were trying to think of sketch ideas, and nothing came up. So we just started telling stories, and I was telling awful stories about my uh, my dad, um, like the zero times zero story that's in that. Uh, I'll say it because my dad really said that. He said uh, when he got drunk, he'd be mean to me and come to my room and say, "Hey kid, how many girls called you yesterday? Zero. How many girls called you today? Zero. You know what zero times zero equals, don't you? Fag." And I was telling these horrible stories, and Dave Foley said, "Hey, you know that could be a sketch." Those weird magic words. And I was horrified. With that. Sketch, though. This is horrible. Uh, and, and we wrote it up. And the, when we uh, brought it to the read-through, the other kids in the hall laughed. And the producers laughed. So it was picked. It was chosen. And then um, cut to a month later when we're shooting in front of a live audience. And right before the sketch, I started shaking. Um, and the reason I was shaking, not that I was going to show something personal. I'm, I'm good with I'm cool with that. But um, that I was confident the audience wasn't going to laugh. And they thought uh, they would think I'd be indulgent. And uh, I got afraid, but then we did it, and the audience laughed, uh, laughed like laughing bastards. They laughed, it was, and it became like one of the sketches I got quoted the most. Uh, but what was your original question? I forget. Oh, growing up, uh, yeah, it was, it was my dad. Uh, it was like awful. But then when I went into my room after like horrible things would happen, I would um, inevitably see the, the comedy in it. And then later, when I got older, like sixteen, seventeen, as it was happening, I would see the. And it was getting way worse, and he would do way worse things. But what, I, what did he do? Way worse stuff. 
Did he uh, hit you? Did he? Yeah, yeah, he hit, and he choked my mother, and and he threw a toaster in my sister's head, and <laughs> things like that. And um, but it was a Canadian toaster, so it wasn't exactly, exactly. The thank, here in the state. Thank God it was a. It's Canadian, only one yeah. slice. It was, yeah, a waffle iron. Yeah. So we we were okay. And uh, once across the street, he was at a bar, and the bartender had, said, "Your dad." He called and said, "Your dad's too drunk," and I had to go get him, and and uh, all the other drunks taunted me. It was like uh, things like that. I swear it's funny in my show. <laughs> what did you do to escape that when you were growing up? Well, I would go to my room and I would uh, take my hockey cards. And uh, we had hockey cards. Uh, and uh, I would uh, like sort of write and act out plays with them. And I would uh, I would sort of act things. It was sort of like the first kind of sketches I wrote. I remember locking my room and escaping and writing. I remember I wrote um, my first sketches in there. Like uh, I wrote a parody of... Uh, I've never even like... Children to anybody. How old are you at this time? Would you say this is like seventeen? Okay. And I wrote a parody of Psycho, uh, the movie Psycho called Psychosomatic, where it was just uh, a, a woman in the shower screaming, "Ow! Oh! Ow!" It was psychosomatic. Also, the odd schizophrenic, which was the same. I wrote that the same day because it's the same kind of idea, where the, uh, instead of Felix and Oscar, the, the odd couple, there was one guy who was both neat and tidy, uh, things like that. But uh, that's what I would do. I would uh, go in my room and. And live in a dream world, which doesn't help me as an adult. Um, and then around this time, 17, 15, yes. I think maybe around 15, you uh, are starting to take classes, or as you say, up in Canada, workshops right. at the Second City in Toronto. How did you end up there? Well, actually, I got to the workshops in 19, and um, what happened was I went to uh, college uh, in, um, in, in, uh, in Toronto, uh, for acting, and not university, college. Because I, I, uh, you had to go to grade thirteen. You had to like the, there was in Toronto there was five years of high school. But I only wanted to go to four years, so I was only entitled for community college. And I went there and uh, for acting, and I was kicked out after three and a half months. A week after John Lennon died, I was I was kicked out. Yeah, uh, but no correlation. But no correlation. Okay. Well, uh, All right. and uh, I remember the guy, the guy, the uh, the dean of the department. He had one leg, and he limped around telling me that I was a one-legged actor. And I remember the, thinking the irony in that. Right. That I. What is that term? You're a one-legged actor. One-legged actor. Uh, it means I was good at a certain thing, uh-huh. but uh, he didn't think I was good at musical theater or, um, or whatever else. I was good at dramatic acting, so I at least had one and a half legs, I think. But I failed the wardrobe department, and I failed dance, and I failed something else. But as I was being uh, kicked at that day, as I was sadly uh, walking to my bus. Like I had to take three buses, one subway, two buses to get back home to the suburb where I lived outside of Toronto. Uh, the improv teacher ran after me, uh, and uh, he said that I was good at improv, and that I should uh, keep it up. And he had he had written down the phone number of Second City Workshops, and he, he gave it to me. And that was my one hope on the bus ride. I had one glimmer of hope uh, that I would do uh, Second City. I always thought Second City would like, I'd go in and be taught by John Candy because I was a SCTV fan then. And this is an interesting sidebar. The teacher uh, who did that um, gave it to me was William Davis, and he played the Smoking Man in X Files years later. Because it was filled, filmed up in, in Canada. Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you go to Second City, yes. and you're amongst this. The the it's you and another teenager, yes. and it's all like thirty year old people who yeah. want to be actors. Who was the other teenager in that first class? The other teenager was a. Uh, I was nineteen. He was seventeen. Was a uh, young man by the name of Mike Myers. And uh, I was telling the class today how uh, Mike and I, we gravitated to each other right away. We knew each other were funny right away. And um, for the first two or three uh, classes, we never volunteered. We were like just funny in the corner. And it was a six-week uh, session. And I remember Mike, by the third or fourth week, Mike said to me, 
you know, Kevin, we paid a fortune to be in this workshop, $60. And I think, you know, we should start volunteering. And, uh, and I remember he, I remember the scene that he did. It was a, a scene where you had to use objects to advance the story and by yourself. And I, I forget, I just remember him being upstairs and opening drawers and, uh, and instead of underwear, finding a gun and doing something funny with a gun. I remember laughing. I remember I was 19 and I grew up in the suburb outside of Toronto, Mississauga, and I had this gunfighter theory of comedy. And I thought that I was, to that point in my life, I was the fastest gunfighter. No one was funnier than me. And when I saw Mike Myers for the first time ever, I thought, I just met someone live, uh, like not on TV, but someone like live in person who might be funnier than me. And then you guys become good friends. We were like, uh, yeah, we, we even started like a troupe that we never got past the uh, first rehearsal. Uh, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. What, well, I, I, a couple things. Uh, the the teacher saw that we were good, and he uh, he was looking for a, a sketch troupe for his girlfriend, who was also very good. Uh-huh. And uh, so we went to his house you know, somewhere in Toronto and uh, talked about it. I guess we went a couple of times to write and rehearse, and nothing ever gelled. And Mike was just too ambitious. He, um, I think, oh, I know what happened. The, like a few weeks after that, he was uh, hired by Second City. You know, I, I knew Mike a little here in, uh, working at the Improv Olympic when he came up and then did Second City Mainstay. He was so, you say ambitious, he was so focused. Was he even focused back then? Oh, yeah. He was so ambitious and so driven. He was, uh, like, the kids in the hall, uh, there were like 12 or 13 of us. And at one point, it was four of us. Uh, Mark, Bruce, Dave, and I. Before Scott (laughs) Thomas. Yes, before Scott. There were four of us. And for some reason, Mark was obsessed with getting a fifth one. And um, Dave and I kept getting Mike Myers to come do our stage shows. This is when we were just a stage troupe. And, uh, And Dave and I wanted it to be Mike. But um, Mark and Bruce were against it. They thought that the Mike Myers area was covered by Dave and I. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Mike would have joined anyway because he was thinking something else. He moved to England anyway. He had a comedy partner, as I remember. Yeah, he went to England and met Neil Malarkey. I think so. Uh, and the, Malarkey and Myers? Or Myers and Malarkey? Malarkey and mm-hmm. Myers. They, yeah, I saw the show because they came and did it in Toronto. And it was really good, really clever. Super clever and super funny. It was great, actually. And uh, yeah, I bring mean, he did Malarkey Myers. Sort of became a, like a, a semi big thing in London. Then um, called Second City and said, I want to come back. To, and, uh, and I think he made main stage first in Chicago. I don't, I don't even know if he did main stage in Toronto, did he? I think, did he go straight to Chicago? He did the Turn Company in Toronto. And then he went to England. And then he went to Chicago, I think. I, I'm not certain on that. We'll have to check. Ben, our producer. When we'll, we interview Mike Myers, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll let you know. <laughs> so then um, you then continue to take workshops and you meet Dave Foley. A year after Mike, I met and, Dave. And, and you said that... He made you laugh during a mirror exercise. Now I teach improv. I, I don't think that's the, the objective <laughs> is to have, to, no. you know, to have them laugh. Uh, what kind of student were you back then, improv student? Um, I was, I was like funny, very, I, I think very funny, but uh, sometimes at the expense of the improv. Like, a, was it more important for you to be funny than to learn the craft? Yeah, it was, but I also, it also, it was more important to learn the craft, but it was also important for me to learn the craft. Uh, but, 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 so I did learn the craft. I wasn't ignoring the craft totally, but it was, um, it was, I think more important for me to, to be funny, but the teachers never seemed to mind for some reason. Now, Dave, he could actually, uh, be funny while doing the craft, though he also liked to break the fourth wall and things like that too, but he could also like just dig in, like he didn't need to do the, the cheap tricks that him and I did all the time. Um, he could actually just get laughs within the confines and structure of pure improv. And then at this point, you asked Dave to join your group. Was there an actual group? No. There was a guy named Looch that, that I knew I wanted to, to, to work with. 
and um, we, I guess at the end, yeah, because we did the mirror exercise at the beginning of the workshop. We did the, I'm miming doing the mirror. Right. And you're not supposed to, like, it's not supposed to be funny. You're not even on stage. You just spread out. Everyone's in groups of twos, and you're spread out around the group, uh, class doing it. It was and, a spolen exercise, right? Yes. Okay. Exactly. But we kept uh, going down uh, till we were lying on the floor in the fetal position. And right away, I thought he was funny. And then at the end of the class, we were split into three groups. And uh, he was like the funniest guy in his group. And now, I, I see Dave like making fun of the mirror exercise. It, that's what it was sort of yeah, happening. Yeah. Yeah. But we were still doing it. We right, were still right. Each other. But kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod. Look, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, look for, at sure. This. for sure. But right away, it seemed like we had chemistry. And then when I saw him do this improv that he was so funny in, I, I just... He also reminded me a little bit of Mike. Uh-huh. So I could have made a mistake. It could have just been they reminded me of Mike, but I don't think so. I, I think that soon by the end of the class, soon, no, no, he's funny. He has great timing. He's a, a joke machine. He was a bit like Woody Allen, uh, which I was too, but but in a different way, uh, a different thing that Woody Allen does. And it just seemed that we had chemistry, and so I asked him to join my troupe, and I didn't know his name. So you guys are doing improv shows around Toronto. Yes, right? Dave Luch and I, the original. Uh, now, speaker. what happened to Dave Luch? I almost felt like he was Pete Best of Kids <laughs> in the Hall. Whatever happened Luch, to him? Luch, Luch, he, um, he's actually great. You always hear that, like Lenny Bruce. Who's the guy in Lenny Bruce? That we, well, he's actually funnier than Lenny and inspired right. him. Right. Like, or they say about Michael Jordan's brother was yeah, a better, better yeah, player. Yeah, exactly. Well, he was, he was actually great. And he came up with a lot of great ideas. And now he is like a, a great, um, like a, like a, a a hard-working writer in Canada, like he writes on all the comedy shows. But back then, um, the three of us, like, we, we did have great chemistry and we were great, but I think he suffered from stage fright. And one night, um, with the guys from Calgary, Mark and Bruce and others, they joined the troupe. That's when there were seven or eight of us, or a lot of us. So and Kids we, in the Hall, there were seven or eight? Originally? Oh, yeah, there, there was different. Because okay. there was Dave Luch and I, and then there were the five guys from Calgary, which Mark and Bruce were part of. Uh-huh. The audience. The audience, Okay, exactly. You've done your research. Yeah. And um, uh, so there were a lot of us. And uh, after one show, Luch came back. So he just said, I, I quit. I, I don't want to go on stage anymore. I'm, I'm starting theater production at university next year, and I, I don't think I can do it. What was your reaction? Cause you... Oh, it was. he was like, uh, understand that I never had a girlfriend until I was like 22 or 23. And uh, this was when I was 21 or 22. And uh, I had friends in high school. But Luch was my first, he was almost like a girlfriend. We called each other on the phone every night. Mm-hmm. This was before cell phones. We did the phone with the long cords. We, we, we phoned him every night. I'd be on the phone, like, uh, and i try to see him all the time. And Dave and I were close, too. But uh, I, I had known Luch before Dave. And uh, it was, like, devastating. I just always, I always thought we'd um, get a TV show. Uh, but I just always assumed Luch would be there. So it, it was, I didn't understand it. it. It was devastating. And we, we sort of never been a close, uh, as close ever since. I probably, like I probably was an immature twenty one year old, and hopefully I'm a, a mature seventy four year old now. But but still, the the root the pattern was set back uh, was set in back then. And you so look great for seventy four, by the way. I know that's why it's good that I lie about my. Age. So then Mark and, and Bruce join you yeah. because they're they come to Toronto and they've got their their group, the audience, yes. and it's a competing group. How do you decide to join forces? Well, yeah, it's funny because uh, there was theater sports, which like right, probably John Stones. Yes, yeah. exactly. Theater. And there was one in Toronto. It started in Calgary. The big thing was in Calgary. Even though Toronto's a bigger city, so we, um, the the kids in hall, which are Dave Luch and I, we got a reputation for theater sports for being the different group, the weird group. We wouldn't win the games, but like we we do weird things that like we'd lose on purpose because you got a zero and we'd go get the judges zero and we'd pull it up and then like the, it it was just the comedy that we cared about. And then um, we started hearing there was a group in uh, Calgary called The Audience. The, there were five of them, but they were a lot like us in spirit. 
and uh, we should meet them. And then, then in 83 was the great Calgary exodus for all these artists, comedians, musicians, uh, including the Shadowy Men that did our music later, yeah. and uh, like writers and poets and, and just people who were following the exodus who weren't even in the arts came to Toronto. And um, we, we were introduced right away, and it was like uh, love at first sight for the comedy troops. But it was uh, it was competitive at first. I remember saying things to Dave like, "Mark's not funny." I, I could talk, look at the way he gets changed the box office of the movie theater. That's not funny. I'd get changed much funnier than that. But because um, they were a couple years older and more experienced, because they were doing their own shows in Calgary, and we were like just starting in three of us, they got the, they rented theater spaces and did their own shows. And they knew we were good, so they got us to be like featured players in, in their shows at Saturday Night Live. And, and slowly it evolved that we were like equals with them. And then how does Scott Thompson, uh, it's been said, I, either you or Dave said this, that when Thompson joins the group, things start to solidify with his presence. What changes yeah. by adding him? I said that. Yeah. First of all, like he was in theater sports and Mark just thought he would be um, something the troupe didn't have. But he's coming from an acting background, right? Yeah, and that's why Dave and I were prejudiced against him because we were prejudiced against actors doing comedy. I, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean now, like then in the eighties, Tom Hanks happened. He could, could do comedy as well as anyone. Like, but but uh, yeah, we, we were we were really prejudiced, and and we didn't want him in the group. And Scott would always say, "It's because I'm gay, isn't it?" And we said, "No, no, no it's because you're an actor." Right. And you say, "Breeders." That was this big heterosexual and so, and uh, uh, things changed. But he but he wore us down. And I remember once he did an improv with me. Like, he was just coming to the shows anyway. Mark wanted him. Bruce didn't care. Dave and I were against it. And then it seemed like he was in the show one night when he did an improv with me uh, that was really good. We were we were both sort of just go for laughs, but we we did the rules of improv, and we got our laughs, and it was good. And, um, and uh, then Dave and I took him to the alley, and we started singing him. Our theme song at that time as a stage act was The, the Kids Are All Right. Mm -hmm. So we started singing, The Kids Are All Right. And he that meant that he was in the troupe, and he started crying, and then that he was officially in. And what he brought, because he was an actor, I mean... The four kids in the hall, we were almost like writers who forced ourselves to perform at first. And we spent a lot of the time back, like at the back of the stage. Sometimes our backs would be turned to the audience. You hear that? Like, barely, barely, you could be barely heard. Barely heard and barely seen. We don't really want to be here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, we have clever ideas. Right, and we can right, hear them. Yeah. And uh, I think it was like the Ramones' first concerts. I heard they were like that. We were like that. And Scott literally forced us to the front of the stage and, and, and by example, taught us presence, stage presence. And he, he was really the one that, that sort of, in a way, said to the audience, come to us, we have something special we want to uh, show you. And, and the audience, like, spiritually and metaphorically leaned in. And I, I really do think things gelled. Well, they did. That's when we started getting an audience, when it became the five of us. And then in, in 1985, uh, McKinney and, and Bruce yes. uh, get hired to write for Saturday Night Live. Yes. Now, this is three years before you get the pilot. Yes. How did you keep the group together? Yeah, we thought it was done because we were discovered because we did a best of show in Toronto after a year of building up uh, our cult status uh, in Toronto. And what does cult status mean in Toronto? Uh, it means uh, sold out audiences of 80 people. Okay. <laughs> it was 160, but 80 sounded funnier. Yeah. And um, uh, so we were discovered uh, by someone who learned Michael Sennett because that was the year he started Saturday Night Live again because he had taken five years off. Of Saturday Night Live, and so we were uh, discovered. But then they could only hire two of us, and they hired the two most experienced ones. And Bruce is the best writer, anyway. And uh, Bruce so seems they, like he's all business too. Bruce is very all business. Well, this he comes work. from a wealthy background. Does that help? He doesn't know. It's Mark that comes. Mark from the wealthy. does. Okay. Mark comes from the wealthy. But they both seem like they're the academics in the group. 
Yeah, they, yeah, Dave would also seem like that too if you uh, spoke to more. Right. Scott and I wouldn't seem like that. Though Scott right. is the only academic in the. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, he's the only one with a degree. Uh-huh. But uh, I would say that Mark and Dave and Bruce would uh, seem like intellectuals if uh-huh. you talked to him. Not Scott and I. <laughs> so they go and they write for, for Saturday Night They write for Saturday Night Live, and we thought it was over, but this was the wonderful thing they did. Uh, you Saturday Live, you do three weeks, and then you get a week off. Right. And they, uh, in their weeks off, they came to Toronto. They didn't rest, and we did. Uh, we kept doing shows at the Rivoli, and some of our um, sketches that became our signature sketches were written during that year, during those weeks off, like uh, Doctor Seuss Bible, and uh, Salty Ham and Cabbage Head, and the uh, Citizen Kane, and uh, and so it sort of became. Even though it was instead of every week, it was once every three weeks or four weeks. It uh, the audiences were bigger than ever. We had to turn people away because two of us were staying our live. And um, and that's when uh, we started getting interest for uh, for TV shows, and we went through a few producers, and finally they didn't gel until Lauren Mike and then Lauren Michael said, "Well, I, I should just do a TV show with them." That's why Mark and Bruce weren't asked back the next season, Saturday Night Live, because uh, that's when we started sort of working on a TV pilot. Though it took a couple of years. One of my all-time favorite sketches is the King of Broken Promises. Yes, yes. Uh, for the people who are younger and haven't seen it, can you just describe it? Yeah, uh, they're going to YouTube it. Let's hope it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one day Norm and I we wrote a lot of Norm sketches Hiscock. together. Norm Hiscock, who is on Parks and Rec right now. Is that's writer. what he's, he's writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he said, "You know, Kevin, we should do a sketch about how you always promise people things, but you never come through." And, so it was based on you. Yeah, a little bit. And, and I always mean it at the time. I always get excited and say, "Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah." And then, like an hour later, I forget. And they, "Oh, weren't you going to get that guy the that CD?" No, I don't remember saying that. So he, uh, so we wrote the sketch. It's one of those things we. We knew the premise, we knew the character, and then we sat on the computer before we knew any of the structure, and it just uh, flowed out, flew out? Flew out sounds bad. It was flowing out, and then we had it written in like less than an hour, and then we read it, and it seemed funny, and I said, but Norm, it seems like uh, I can't do it like myself, it should be like a character that sort of suggests evil in a non-evil way, and then I thought, uh, Paul Bellini, Scott's writing partner, you know, the Touch Bellini uh, guy, the guy in the towel, you remember the Touch Bellini contest? Where he's the the guy in the towel that we poke with a stick. No, do you, Ben? Yes. Uh, yeah. He's Scott's writing partner. Okay. And uh, and he has this way of talking. And I said, I think we should. Uh, I should do it like how uh, how Bellini talks, and that's how Bellini talks. So instead of going, we'll do. I started doing like Bellini, which is we'll do. Slip my mind. Because every time you'd hear Scott and Bellini write, uh, it, it was mostly Scott dictating, and like, or sometimes Scott Scott would suggest a joke, and you hear Bellini uh, from their cubicle. You hear Bellini go, No, Thompson. I'm not writing that, it's shit. <laughs> to which Scott's uh, writing reply would be, Yeah, but anyway, you're fat, so write it. <laughs> you can assault me all you want, Thompson. I'm not writing it. So I thought that was like, a good guy. Uh, and he doesn't really speak like that, but that's how I do him. And that's how I was doing him around the office uh, that year. And so so we read the script, uh, like in that character, and it seemed to work perfectly. It was just great. And I don't know who I felt more sorry for. Fo- uh, Foley was the kid, right? Yeah. I don't know if your kid, because I could relate, because I was like that as a kid, yeah. or the kid who believed <laughs> that he, the person was actually going to come yeah. through on the promises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I probably feel sorry for Dave. And that's the other thing with Dave. We read him just to do it, uh, we wrote him just to do it totally normal, and we didn't know that he'd uh, got this elaborate wig and uh, like antique thing, and he, was, and he was doing it like a weird cartoon character. And so when we first started the sketch, I was worried that, oh, if we're both two cartoons, it's not going to work. But and then as soon as we start acting, it's oh yeah, Dave knows what he's doing. It totally works. 
The, you know, the thing I loved about Kids in the Hall, and it was funny because you talked about the jealousy, because I remember when you guys first came on, people were like, the first couple of, oh, they're not funny. You know, because you know yeah. how that, you yeah. know how comedy people are. Oh, yeah. You know, they're not funny. Yeah, they're not funny. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. we were all comedy snobs, and then... It grows on you. It grows on you, and you're like... But I heard you said that really you have to watch it a couple times yes. just to, to get it. Yeah, I think so. I think when I uh, when I was a kid watching Monty Python, it was unlike anything. Uh, like, I like Carol Burnett and Sid Caesar and stuff, but it was unlike a- anything that I did. I wasn't old enough to, like, ever heard The Goon Show or anything like that. And, um, and even from The Goon Show, they advanced it so much. So, it, to me... It was really weird and strange, and I didn't get it, but I knew there was something special about it. I knew there was something worthwhile. I knew something different was happening. <coughs> so so that's what made me watch it again. So like he, you're saying when people watch The Kids in Hall don't get it the first time, but they have to watch it two or three times. What made them watch it the second or third time? There's just something there that they know. Like, like, like a great song that you need three times to hear before you know it's a great song. Like that. Well, I think the other thing is that I loved about your show was, after I got over the jealousy and, and you know, <laughs> said, okay, these guys are, are, are great was even when it wasn't funny, you're like, I've never seen that on television before. Right. You guys would take these risks. And how important was putting a sketch on, even if it wasn't funny, just for the sake that it was uh, weird, that you needed to do that to, to, be, to be overall to be the, the funny quotient? Well, the thing is there was like, uh, there's two trains of thought. That's my phone. So, yeah. <laughs> there's two trains of thought. I was going to ignore it. I was going to be right. a, no, no, a no, no, professional. Yeah. 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 We two... use everything. Uh, there were two trains of thoughts um, in the group, and uh, and there was always a uh, sometimes there was always like a comedy argument. Whereas that's my phone, and I'm, it's going oh. off. I feel a lot oh, of sorry, shame yeah. about that. Okay, go on. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. should I call you? <laughs> okay. Um, there's two. Thro- uh, yeah, yeah. Two yeah there's two trains of thoughts, uh, and one is represented by Dave and I, mostly Dave, mm-hmm. and one's represented by Bruce and Mark. And in a way, sometimes mostly Bruce, sometimes mostly Mark. Dave and I. Wanted just everything to be funny all the time, mm-hmm. and Bruce and Mark sometimes would go more for feeling and weirdness. Like, um, so I think the scene—I don't know if you're referring to directly—but the scene that, that represents what you're saying the most is "Love and Sausages," the mm-hmm. sausages scene, and that um, actually Norm wrote it. That, actually, Norm wrote it for me, mm-hmm. and he wrote the beard for Bruce. And uh, Bruce said, "Can I do sausages? I, I'd like to rewrite. I know what to do with it." And Norm came to me. He said, "Do you mind? Um, oh, yeah, giving a." Uh, Bruce sausages, and I was in a bad mood. I said, "No, but he's got to give me the beard," which is like unlike me. I remember being shocked. So we switched, and uh, but anyway, sausages um, was always a, a fight from um, not so much me because I because I don't mind feeling sometimes. I think it's part of the troop. I think it represents part of the troop. We're gonna have like seven um, sketches an episode, and uh, I, why can't one be like sausages? There's gonna be like five or six that we're at least going for gag fest. So, uh, but but Dave was more protective of, of that. Like all the time, he wanted to be gag fest. And so, um, so he fought against it, but he knew to give up. And even our director, John Blanchard, who was also SCTV director, uh, he he didn't direct that film, but he was the producer of the show that time, and he fought against it. But uh, but we picked it, we chose it, we did it. And um, when you think about it, it's not a laugh uh, a minute, or a laugh a second riot. It's uh, the only thing that's technically funny in it is Scott is the grandfather saying sausages, sausages, and that's like a performance thing. But just the fact that people talk about it still 20 years after and, and the feel of it. Like, sometimes I think it could have been our movie. Uh, we'd have to put more jokes into it. But, yeah, I th- it definitely represents um, a valid um, part of the brain that is the kids in the hall. And uh, I'm so glad that we did it. Let's talk about the movie, Brain Candy. Yes. 
which was a very stressful time for, for, for you and the crew. Yes. And your friendship with Dave Foley. Yes. Um, he's doing news radio uh, during that time, and he decides to quit yes. the movie. Why does he leave? <laughs> he leaves, well, um, there's a few things that are happening. It was a horrible time for the troop. There, some, some, of our, uh, some of us in our family, there were like two suicides in the troop's families. And uh, Well, you guys all come pretty much from, except for Bruce, right, come from uh, alcoholic Dysfunctional family. White trash trouble, we like okay. to call it. <laughs> we come basically, uh, for, except for Mark, uh, white trash trouble. And <laughs> at the, at my mother wouldn't hate that. Though she's dead, so I'm right. saying, because uh, she's not white trash. Mm-hmm. And um, and there were like uh, two of us had our wives leave us. And um, it, it was hard because we were writing for the first time. All of us writing together in the same room with Norm. And that was really hard. Usually we split up in groups. Or, or in the old days when we were club act, we wrote together in a different. We didn't write it down. We like we did what I'm doing in this workshop. We improvised it so we had it. But we were at a computer writing, and it was very difficult. Uh, and you wrote a letter. You were yeah. upset at, at Dave, so you write him a letter. Yeah, because Dave Dave was in news radio, and he wanted to delay our movie Brain Candy a year so he could do his movie The Wrong Guy, which is a very funny movie. Um, and I thought because he said the Brain Candy wasn't ready yet, the script wasn't ready yet, and I thought. Knowing the kids in the hall, we delayed a year. We're not going to do brain candy. We'll be on other projects, and it won't be done. So I and I was I realized later, speaking of jealousy, um, that I was partly motivated by jealousy of Dave, that he was getting news radio, that he was so good, that he was on his way to becoming a Hollywood star. I had heard too. Now, now tell me, this is now I'll tell you. from people. I'll tell you the truth. Okay, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Dave, everybody in Toronto knew that Dave wanted to be a star. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know about that. Uh, Not that it's a. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I mean, at that time he was driveling like him and his wife at the time were were, were, were sort of like uh, being smart about it, like going to Hollywood and going to the right parties. Uh-huh. But but no, I would say I would say that was more like Mike uh, Myers. Yeah yeah, like like in a good way. Like Mike was really smart about it and did it. Mm-hmm. And I'm more like a sloth. And the, thank God I was in a group of four guys that were like ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I never like thought of it that way with Dave. I mean, he he was driven at that point. And he was working very hard to like become successful in, in like in a place other than Canada, mm-hmm. in, in Hollywood for sure. And um, so you write him this letter. I wrote, yeah, I wrote him this letter, uh, and I forget what it was about, but it was emotional uh, about how he was hurting the troop and stuff. And like you that. you also said that he was making some some choices that weren't helping the group, that were what was hurting the group. Right. Well, the the biggest one was like not wanting to do brain candy, mm-hmm. uh, like wanting to delay so he could do his movie. And he uh, and so at a troop writers meeting, I said, "Dave, read this letter." I don't know why I wanted him to read it out loud. Uh, it was crazy to me. And he said, "I refuse to re- uh, read this letter." I said, "Okay, go away and read this letter." He said, "No, I'm never going to read this letter." And then I forget. I, I blocked it out, but I said something, probably horrible, that led Dave to say, that "Led Dave to say, that's it. I quit the troop." And he did. He quit the troop. Did you feel responsible? Oh, totally. Why well, was? Well. I think Dave was looking for a way to quit the troop, and he and I gave him a beautiful like uh, way to do it, because um, he wasn't happy with the troop. Yeah, and that this one time with the two part of the factions of the group uh, weren't working together. I I moved to the other faction because I, w- I wasn't agreeing with how Dave thought Brain Candy would go. I, f- I forget what it was like. Uh, he wanted more like Holy Grail, uh, that the more comedy, the more comedy less story. I love Holy Grail. And I, I, in retrospect, I think we we should have done a movie like that. But the movie that we committed to working on, Brain Candy, wasn't that movie. It was a movie with a story. So I, I wanted to do this particular project that we were working on. I thought we should do it the way that it deserved to be done. And 
uh, so they had quit the troop, and unfortunately for him, he had already signed the contract before he quit the troop, so he had to do brain candy. Uh, but he didn't write anymore, and you could. Uh, I love Brain Candy, but you could, if you're a Kid in the Hall fan, or if you're a Kid in the Hall, you know that it suffers from Dave not writing. It just needed those jokes for sure. And also, when, when Dave came back, he didn't do very much, so he, he basically played guys in suits, and uh, he had straight parts, and, and he could have, like... Um, well, he should have been the lead. Dave was going to be the lead. We always thought Dave would be the lead, just like he was in news radio, sort of being the straight guy who can get With laughs. the craziness. Yeah, yeah, around. yeah, exactly. But he'd be much better getting laughs while, while doing that. I I did it because no one else. Uh, I I was the only one that could do it, but it shouldn't. It would have been a completely different, a funnier movie if I did characters like the Will Do guy or whatever, and though it would have been different, it wouldn't have been that one. And and Dave did the lead. I I think so. He comes back to do it, and and your his manager, which is also your manager, yeah. says, yeah, he says, uh, Dave's uh, gonna do it, but he uh, but he uh, he had to do it, but he uh, has some restrictions. He won't he won't play women. And there was a few things, but of course the thing I remember the most was, uh, and Kevin's not allowed to talk to him about, and try to work it out with him on set, because that's what I do. <laughs> I do like, Is that what takes. you're known for, to yeah. work stuff out? <laughs> where, where does that come from? Because uh, you wouldn't think someone who came from an alcoholic household, unless they... Oh, well, it's, it's not so positive as I'm making it sound. It's not like I want to work stuff out. I, I want to like beat it to death and worry it and then right. talk it. I, like, I, I guess my heart's in the right place. I want to deal with it. But, uh, but I'm pretty irritating and pesty on the way. On the way to, I wish I could do it as healthy as it sounds. But um, it's more about being a child of an alcoholic. Well, let's talk about it now. Let's let's do it now. Let's do it. I don't want to wait till tomorrow. Uh-huh. Where Dad may hit me with the with the fridge. I want to deal with it now. Are you kind of a guy who wants to resolve it right there? Well, I can go two ways uh, because I'm partly Gemini. I can go two ways. I, I either want to deal with it right now or I want to avoid it for twenty years. Um. So five years later, you patch things up with Dave. Oh, not even. It was way sooner than that. Okay. It, it was uh, like a few years later we did the tour, but um. We uh, what was it? It was like it was before even the movie was released. Brain Candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was. How did you patch things up? It was. It all started from Dave. I was so shy. I wanted to patch things up desperately. Were you mad at him? I was not mad at him. I realized at that point that I was jealous. Okay, how did you come to that realization? It's just uh, slowly dawned on me by the fact that everybody was talking about how good news radio was, and I realized that I wasn't watching it, which is really weird. And my like best friend was like in a TV show on NBC that I wasn't watching. I just threw my TV out with all my friends. Back <laughs> back, I just threw my TV out and just was in denial why I did it. I, you know. I, well, and also I realized a few years earlier when Mark was nominated for uh, an Ace Award for Best Actor, I remember being really depressed after, and then I realized I'm jealous of my friends' successes, and all my friends are really really successful. So I have to end that right now, like, even for selfish reasons. It will cripple me inside. And I will get stomach cancer, and uh, and so I, I, I can't do this with everything in my life. But I, uh, I just stopped it, and I stopped it right before Dave called me. I'd um, he'd been living in L.A. to do uh, his TV show, uh, uh, news radio, and uh, and I was there slowly moving. But I was renting a condo. And I saw the house in Toronto, and he knew I was there. And he got my phone number from somebody, and he called me. And I remember the there was a hockey game on, but I was in the bath. Uh, and then he called and, and uh, said, oh, I, I heard you're, you know, you're only a few blocks away. I heard you're in Hollywood. Yeah, do you want you to come down tonight? Do you want to see uh, X-Files in my house? So, oh, sure, I'd like to see that. And that was the beginning of patching up. And later I realized, I found out he was in the bath, so we patched up naked and wet. Mm. 
Now, was this one of these times where you wanted to resolve it? You oh. talked about it? Or was this one of these things, let's talk about it 20 years down let's the road? Let's talk about it 20 years down the road. We just came in and we, we made jokes like the old days and we talked about X-Files and uh, a few of his friends came over and I introduced him and we had like a good fun time. Then his friends went away and him and I went to a record store. I remember I told him to buy the Big Star CD because he didn't buy Big Star and I wanted to get into that. And I also remember thinking, wow, this is opposite of a, the Dave I knew like 10 years earlier because he, he was uh, working on a network show and he bought like 30 CDs. And like he's, oh, I heard this is great. Oh, I like the cover of this one. And, it was, and, I, <laughs> and but, but we, so we just started being friends again. And um, every now and then when we're like uh, on tours alone in the bus, a little drunk or, or something, we, we talk about it and, you know, and he knows that I know that I was jealous, and um, and he he felt betrayed. He told me that one day. I think uh, I think it was in Dallas or Houston, and, and, and we talk about it every three years. <laughs> now you had also said in your show that you compared the kids in the hall to your family, and you said they were very dysfunctional, <laughs> both of them. Yes, it's obvious your family was very dysfunctional with your father. What was dysfunctional of the, uh, in in that time in you know the eighties and the nineties when you guys were had the show? What was dysfunctional about the group? Oh, like everything. And I'm sure that that was part of my attraction. And uh, now, um, as an adult who's trying to be totally functional, I think we should all, uh, I would love to just get everyone more uh, like normal human beings and have things work right. Uh, it was, you know, we fought for no reason or we, or even when we fought for good reasons, it was, um, it was ugly. Like we were like best friends who happened to be in a comedy troupe. Was there drugs and drinking? I would imagine because you guys came from alcoholic backgrounds. There right. had to be drugs and drinking in the group. No, nah, there wasn't really. There was like, um, like norm. Like back then, there was like, uh, I never did drugs, and I uh, and uh, like some members did like normally, uh, but but it was never about that. It was like, not like a rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. It was like, uh, it wasn't like anything like a problem at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't even drink till I was twenty six, mm -hmm. and, um, and Mark and Scott don't drink a lot at all, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, is that a is it like are you that? kidding or no no that's true it's true okay. it's just what, what am I saying about the other two and it's um, it, like there was never like it was never like about oh someone's drinking it's a problem like that at all and like there were never any girls around <laughs> it, was, it was nothing like that so at all so you guys were like total nerds right yeah that's what I think I, uh, that's the way I remember it for sure there was, uh, I was girlfriendless so I was 23 um, uh, there were never groupies ever <laughs> <laughs> like ever, ever, like the, like the, we were young. There were, uh, I guess, when you would want. There was never anything like that. No, sex, drugs, and rock and roll whatsoever. Just guys, nerdy guys, pushing their glasses up, um, going to comedy, then going to the library after. Now I watched uh, an interview that you guys had done for CBC when uh, your miniseries came out. Yes, and it was so nice to watch you guys just interacting with each other because it seems like now you really enjoy each other's company right. is, is that yeah I, I, oh yeah now we we always enjoyed it but now all the negative things are, are out of the way so we just have the enjoyment so um the whole picture is just enjoyment now and i think uh you know the rock band camper van beethoven no well they were a band in the 80s and uh you can youtube that i'm sure yes camper van beethoven uh their best album in my opinion is our beloved revolutionary sweetheart and they, they um, where he went into form Cracker. Yeah, and Cracker. That's right, Cracker. He became Cracker. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> that's right. And they have a new Cracker, a new camper. Well, not new. It's been a few. Anyway, um, uh, they apparently fought a lot. And then when they got back together in the, I guess, five or six years ago, uh, they asked about that. And they said, we don't fight anymore. Uh, when you're in your 20s, 
and you're in a group of men working together, it's your job to be an asshole. Uh, but now in, in our 40s, it's our job not to be an asshole. But isn't there also this thing of like, when you start out, do you, you there's this, I want to be famous, I want to hit yeah. it, I want to get big. Yeah. And then you realize the older you get, that this is such a hard business. Yeah. And, you know, Dave could have, Dave was on news radio, you know, at, at one time. It just changes, so... Yeah, it's cyclical, for sure. Yeah. You get more mature about it, and you understand it. And also, we, we are closer to the end than the beginning, mm -hmm. so there's less pressure. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I still think uh, the the big thing that I'm going to do away from the kids and all, I haven't done yet. Well, obviously, because I haven't... Um, I still think that's coming. So I still have the eye of the tiger, as Rocky Balboa would say. But but uh, but there's less pressure. Uh, like I I uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this phrase. I've been in this business for 30 years, and so um, just being in it and, and knowing what it, you ride the ups and downs. Uh, there's less pressure, and also like um, like Saturday Night Live, they they auditioned for a show, and so of course they would fight for more like more time and more space. When the kids in the hall fought, it wasn't for that so much. It was for, it was taking things personal. Or why don't you like my sketch? Why are you trying to hurt my sketch? I, I wouldn't cut that. And uh, and and because we were friends, it, it sort of hurt more probably than the Saturday Night Live argument would. would. And what um, now you're you're teaching and and tell us you're teaching uh, improv for writing. Yes. And so are you? <laughs> what's so funny about that? Because I'm not really an improviser. Well, I but, heard that you do, you don't even consider yourself a good improviser. No, no, I, I yeah, that's correct. I think I'm funny during improv, uh, <laughs> which is different. But being a good improviser, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm uh, funny. I, and nowadays, when I improv, sometimes I uh, I do improv shows with the guys taking my um, the guys and gals taking my workshop. I uh, because I've been teaching and I've been seeing them do it so well all day. I can sort of stick by the rules, <laughs> but. But the reason I'm teaching is uh, because that's how the kids in Hall wrote. So I am I do feel very experienced in writing through improv, and because we, um, we didn't do it in front of a live audience, we we wrote only it wasn't with computers. We stood up and we improvised in front of each other until we. Uh, I mean that's how we wrote. So it is writing like uh, through improv. So you're you're sharing them your your process that you did. Yes. Okay. Um, what is your relationship with now with improv? That's, that's a good question. Like before this workshop, I would say um, I don't have any, and uh, but but that wouldn't be true because I'm realizing through this workshop I always do. Even when I'm writing alone and uh, and I'm by uh, my computer, I'm really improvising in my head. And I mean that's how you write. Like you imagine the people t talking and what they say in, in the dialogue. And I think that would that's made stronger because all the years of improv. Like we improvise forever. As much as I knock myself as an improviser, the. Um, when the audience came to Toronto, uh, they came with, you know, great scenes that were written. And the thought was the kids in the hall were better improvisers and the audience were, were better writers. And we did the, we got so much laughs during improvs that maybe that means we were good improvisers. And um, I say Dave and then later Mark were technically good improvisers as well. Uh, so so I'd be, we, all we did was, impro I imp I've improvised 100 million hours. So, like, a, I, I, it's definitely got into my system and, and comes out in writing and performing for sure. And how long have you been teaching? Uh, this, I uh, just, um, uh, what's it, uh, six months. And what are you getting out of teaching well, versus performing? Um, it's funny. Uh, it's making me realize uh, how much I love sketch comedy. And it's making me email the kids in the because we're trying to get together. And usually it's Bruce that motivates and try to get this together. But it's making me miss the kids in the hall even more. So I'm the one like uh, like trying to motivate and, and get everyone uh, together 
because I feel desperate need to do something. Uh, you're getting, in you're in Winnipeg now, right? I am in Winnipeg. I've been there for a and couple is years. Scott still in Toronto. Scott's in Toronto. Mark's in Toronto. Uh, Bruce and Dave are in LA. Is there anything planned for the kids in the hall? We're having meetings about uh, what we should have meetings about. Great. You'll let me know if anything. I will let you know. Great. We'll do. <laughs> Great. Great. Kevin McDonald, thank you so much thank for being much. our thank guest you. on Improv Nerd. You're very good questions. Thank I, you. I, you, had, you know, I called you good questions. I, I mean, you, you have very good questions. Great. Thank you so much. You're very much. good questions. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. That was really fun. I liked it. Improv I want to thank Kevin McDonald for giving us uh, some of his time. We recorded this at the CIC in Chicago. I want to thank, as always, my producer, Ben Caprero. And please, please, please like Improv Nerd on Facebook. For more information about uh, the Artist Low Comedy Classes and Workshops, which is a winner of the Innie Award for Best Classes and Workshops, go to jimmycarane.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, remember, walk, don't run. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, no. the 70s were crazy. Night. <laughs> the crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine as he approaches the red rope of the VIP pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film smooth skin Scarface yells out his signature line <laughs> ciao bella it's me Scarface oh my God.